Hey, welcome to episode 92 of the Thodcast, Conversations About Animation. I'm your host, Philip Elke, and I'm coming to you from northern Minnesota. The cold season is upon us, but today we'll bring you a little bit of, I don't know, uh, warmth and uh, <laughs> comfort uh, with today's show featuring the one and only Jody Plasky joining us from Georgia. How are you doing, Jody? Uh, good. As I was saying, it feels like it's getting really dark and like gloomy around here right now, but I'm really excited to worm our way into one of my favorite sci-fi's Dune. Um, but yeah, it's it's dark and it's gloomy, so this is the perfect conversation to warm things up. Yeah, yeah, this will be a fun little, you know, jaunt down some literary intrigue. And uh, yeah, what a fascinating ride. The world of Dune is able to provide yeah, worming our way into this uh, this subject that just um, can encapsulate any number of great mythical topics, uh, storytelling and adventure and um, and just epic cinema. Um, what a ride to have finally gotten a an adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune uh, from, I think, 1965, right? The novel, you're familiar with the novel. Yep, I've read Dune and it was 1965 that that book came out. And I think it was a lot of people's kind of gateway drug into sci-fi. It's a really well-rounded storyline. And I think it's one of the first books I read that really captivated me in the sci-fi mm. genre. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I really empathize with uh, wanting to you know get in as invested in sci-fi as as you can get um but i unfortunately have not read dune i've started the um the audiobook it's very good it's, it's certainly an enjoyable epic tale uh, a lot of kind of familiar tropes and you know subjects that you know, get used in a lot of similar stories um, it's it's an operatic story um, that contains a lot of interesting sci-fi concepts, but also a lot of heart. And it's, it's an intimate story involving things like destiny and mysticism. Uh, so it's, it's very Star Warsy, which I've always loved. Star Wars. I've spent you know thousands upon thousands of hours consuming Star Wars material throughout my life. So I don't know. I'm I'm kind of ready to have this kind of conversation at a moment's notice. Um, yeah, I, uh, I've read some of what Michael Crichton's books were, were some of my favorites in high school, um, but I need to get more into sci-fi now. Um, just it's, it's time I stimulate my brain once again. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, because they're such world building books, it does take a little bit of commitment at the beginning to sort of immerse yourself into the empire or universe you're kind mm. of letting yourself read about. Um, and it was the same for me when I read this book the first time. I'm really grateful now that I read it because going into the movie, I felt like I was able to just sort of embrace like the cinematics and not focus much on the plot. Um, there are so many people that are like huge, huge fans of this. And I looked at different, you know, reviews and uh, podcasts and people who have been talking about this in great detail. And I'm kind of excited to talk about it like on a little bit more of a surface level because like I'm not an expert about like 
all these different like types of people and all these like different political chains within the book. But I mean, I, I get the basic stuff, like the economic issues, the political philosophy that comes into it, religion, mm -hmm. future of humanity. I think it's a lot of fun. And mm -hmm. he did a great job, I guess, creating a really well-rounded universe, you know? And I, I think it's mm -hmm. supposed to be our universe, but down the line, mm -hmm. right? It's not supposed to be this magic made up place with like time travel. It's supposed to be Mm -hmm. kind of realistic which which is which is interesting to me I don't really like when sci-fi mixes in magic like I feel like this stuff could maybe happen I don't know yeah they there's a you know deliberate choice to set this in uh our timeline so to speak it's explicitly stated to be what the year 10,000 according to our calendar as far as I know it's, it's somewhere around that neighborhood right yeah, in, that's in the five sort of, digits. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's sort of where they place it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, at this point, everybody's living on different planets. There's different uh, dukes, and but there's only really one mm -hmm. overall emperor. So at least that's part of the storyline is easy to keep track of. There's the emperor, and then there's these like various planets. And like the main character from Dune, for anyone who watched it, it's Paul. And really, I mean, it's a hero's journey. It's a, I guess, a Messiah type journey that you get yeah. to sort of follow. Um, which is kind of nice because if you just want to focus on Paul and his story mm -hmm. and enjoy it that way, you can, or if you want to look at the overall, you know, dramatic storytelling of, of, I think religion pops up a lot in politics. There's that there too. So I think it's a good fit for anyone, as long as you can read it or watch it and remember who is who, because the names of the planets and the names of the people for me get very confusing. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh deep cast and uh you know with this type of story where it's it spread over multiple installments and you know this is i guess ostensibly the first half of the first dune novel uh dune um and we are for sure getting another dune film from denis villeneuve and warner brothers uh, I suppose they could also split a subsequent film, a, you know, the rest of the novel into more than one. Uh, I, I feel like that might be kind of wise to do like the, a trilogy, maybe. Yeah, um, the, the, the Lord of the Rings pattern of filming more than one film um, at, at one time, you know, in one mm -hmm. production cycle, basically. Yeah, uh, but who knows what if that would be practical ultimately um it is another example from uh, warner brothers recently a novel that was split into two parts it's such a long novel right. um, the first i feel uh, it film was much better received than second unfortunately yeah. i saw both and the first was like nine out of ten the second one's like six out of ten yeah so we'll see i i I have high hopes for the next Dune. It seems like the next one will be much heavier on action, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, this one uh, had plenty of fun, exciting adventure and action to keep the audience compelled, but it had a certain uh, methodical pacing as well, I thought. Um, it's very yeah. artistic. Um, but... I think it was good that the very first frame was kind of like part one just so everyone who was in the theater knew you know you're not going to have like the beginning middle and end at this moment like you're going to experience a build 
And as someone who hasn't read the book, does that frustrate you with movies or for most of the time, are you okay with knowing I'm not going to have like the climax and my happy ending right now. I'm going to like build up to it in this film. No, yeah, I, I was, I wasn't expecting anything to be resolved too heavily in this film. Um, I, I actually had started, you know, the, the audiobook, So I knew how the book began and, and this film adaptation, um, I think perfectly um, began, you know, how, how you would maybe want to attempt the, the adaptation of, of a novel like that. Um, and it, it does kind of have a, a fairly, you're just kind of thrown in the world in, in sort of this mundane scenario, apart from the fact that it, um, there's this character having to um, undergo a certain trial. Um, it's, it's a little out of order here in, in the film. He's, you know, having to, he's just talking about some visions he's having. And then the, the trial with the uh, Bene Gesserit mother comes later. Um, but all, all that um, sort of shoe leather is still contained within um, the film. Uh, and it's, it's a crucial piece of the, the novel, you know, hence why it, it kicks the entire story off. But um, I, I really, it's just such an interesting take on the hero's journey where it, it's clearly designed to be venerative. And he's, you know, a lot of these, you know, hero's journey um, portrayals don't have a lot of pomp and circumstance that they throw the hero's way from the start. Whereas, you know, the, the novel has these, you know, in, interesting poetic interludes at the start of each chapter, sort of celebrating the coming of this Messiah character. And, and we know, you know, who pretty early on through in, in the book, who it is. It's not, not meant to yeah. be a secret. Yeah. No spoiler. Like it's yeah. Paul who's um, played by, he's so famous right now. Like he's yeah. like too hot to handle this Timothy Chalamet. Yep. Timothy Chalamet. And he uh, was just in another, the French dispatch, <laughs> the French dispatch just came out. So he's like, I mean, he's really good and he looks great on the camera. Like, let's be mm -hmm. honest, like his jawline, he's really slender. I don't know if he like lost weight for the film or that's his build, but mm -hmm. to me, he made a great Paul. And apparently he was handpicked for the role. There was never an audition process for Paul with this, rendition huh. of the story um, makes a I, lot of sense i you know knew who the actor was going to be and so going into the audio book you know i immediately imagined timothy chalamet occupying the role in my imagination um it just it works very well there was a role previously held by um let's see kyle mclaughlin in the 1984 adaptation and he doesn't quite look the part of a late teen, you know, mm -hmm. what is he supposed to be 15 in this technically? Yes, 15? he's supposed to be younger because you're supposed to sort of be seeing this potential man, mm. not really a man yet, but like, yeah. I mean, it's like Simba when he's kind of like in between yeah. boy and man. And Zendaya is the, I guess you'd call her the lead female, but not really in part one. She's mm -hmm. kind of more of like, She's just kind of like a vision. I would say his mother, Paul's mother, Jessica, is sort of like mm. the strongest female 
um, for this movie. But, but Zendaya, mm -hmm. she's going to play a massive part in the second part. I hope I'm saying her name right. Zendaya. I think it is Zendaya. It's uh, okay. you know, a lot of people gorgeous. like to say <laughs> Zendaya, but I think I think she prefers to Zendaya. Um, yeah, Rebecca Ferguson plays Lady Jessica Atreides. Uh, Oscar Isaac is Paul's father, uh, Duke Leto. Mm -hmm. um, and the the people in this universe, uh, do they age normally? Or I, I thought I remember hearing like, you know, even if they're like 70 years old, they don't, they might still look like they're only in their 30s or 40s. I... Right. So what's a little bit interesting that I felt like was overlooked in the movie is the spice that's referenced a lot um, on the planet Dune or Iraq, uh, Arrakis, I think yeah. they call it, Arrakis, Dune, whatever. Um that spice, not only does it help harness space travel, intergalactic connection, mm -hmm. um, in the book at least, it's also able to give people like double the amount of life. They can kind of like take it like a hallucinogen. Like, okay. I don't quite know how to explain it, but it's something you can become addicted to. Um, it opens up a second sight, it heightens your awareness and you can live longer. So if you're a wealthy person who has access to this spice, um, mm -hmm. you have the potential to live you know, hundreds and hundreds of years versus okay. the normal lifespan of people there. Yeah. Um, Lady Jessica is, um, she's referred to as a witch by some, I guess it's kind of a pejorative, but she's, she's a mystic. <laughs> all women that think, all women that think are witches. That's what they say. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, Paul has heightened uh, perceptual abilities as well. I imagine things like spice are designed to, you know, enhance these inherent psychic abilities that some people have. And it, um, it's just a kind of a fun concept. I imagine that may be tied as well to, you know, in, um, slower aging and, and other powers that people in this universe might possess, sort of like Jedi mm -hmm. in Star Wars. Especially if it's supposed to be, you know, the year 10,000 and forward, you would hope that our genetics over time evolve into like a healthier, stronger, longer lasting human. Um, yeah. And with Jessica, what's interesting, and I feel like they skim over it because I mean, you have to skim over so many things when a book is 200,000 words, like mm -hmm. even when you break it into two, three parts, but she's part of that Benny Gesserit group. Mm -hmm. Like she is a member of it. And, you know, they're kind of portrayed as this religious group, but they're really a group of women who manipulate people to their own ends. Hmm. And they take hundreds of thousands of years to set up their scams. And they've been like kind of crossing bloodlines with the elite to better their own. And since Jessica is one of the Bene Gesserits, mm -hmm. um, Paul is therefore a product of them. And what's kind of unique about Jessica is she had the ability to either have a son or a daughter when she had Paul and she chose to have a son. But Benny Jesuits are supposed to have daughters because it's a group of women, you know, preserving yeah. their power throughout time. But she chose Paul because she had a vision that he could be the one to come and kind of change it all. The, the Messiah that people yeah. reference. And that's why she's kind of like an outcast of that group. I feel like when I watched the movie, some people were like a little confused as to why she was not clicking with that the person who was kind of giving Paul the tests on his sure. humanity. Um, and that's because they're disappointed with her for having a son, but obviously she's very proud of him and she teaches him kind of how to use that second voice and how to be in touch, you know, kind of clairvoyant. Oh, yeah, um, the voice. Yeah. So that's a really interesting storyline that didn't quite make it in there, but you know, they, they still kind of 
gave you the moments and the glimpses of it, I think, in the film. So fascinating. She, you know, perhaps the definitely the pivotal character besides Paul in this installment. Um, it, it does tend to focus on the two of them as a unit, uh, the, the mother and son. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that unfolded that I actually I did not see coming because I hadn't gotten to that point in the novel. Um, so as this uh, movie unfolds, it it does turn quite spoiler uh, spoilery quite quickly and suddenly. Um, and and this is sort of foreshadowed in some of those um, poetic interludes in the in the novels as well, um, which I thought was kind of funny. These little uh, episode or the chapter um, subheadings like uh, allude to uh, you know the ulterior motives of some of the secondary characters, and it's like oh spoilers. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but oh, it's it's more about the grand tale of this yeah muad'dib i guess is is a term for the ultimate you know savior that that paul is destined to become or who knows how it all plays out it could could subvert a lot of this kind of stuff in the end but um overall it does read in sort of very biblical fashion um, it's just it's presenting things as they happen in, in a very sort of plain um, manner. Right. I think when I think of Paul and sort of like his story, do you remember in the movie The Lion King where he like just wants to be like Hakuna Matata, like he do doesn't really want to go back and be the new yeah. lead of all the lions? I feel like Paul definitely, well, I'm not I feel, I know that Paul has like these conflicting thoughts when it comes to being a messiah because yeah. i with his visions not only can he see what will happen he also gets visions of what could happen depending on his decisions and i think that paralyzes him with like fear like he mm -hmm. isn't sure because he's not sure what is going to be true and fake with his visions he knows that yeah. they could could come to be but they also know that some of them like depending on what he choose can come to be if that makes sense like yeah and i think I, that's really yeah. scary for him because in the book, at least, he sees a lot of like slaughter and murder and blood on people's hands due to him, like in his name. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's all these bloody wars, Catholic wars, mm -hmm. uh, religious wars in the name of Jesus. And mm -hmm. I I'm wondering if Jesus, if he had visions, well, he would be all knowing, but like, I'm sure he doesn't really like that. And that's sort of like how Paul is supposed to be like, as much as he wants to bring a better future for him and his family, like he doesn't want, you know, this mass war to come to be whereas the the other the other like the harkonnens and the emperor like they don't mind if a big holy war comes like for them that's an economic opportunity mm -hmm. yeah the the government situation in this universe is, is very fascinating you know it's it's um interesting how it resembles like a feudal society on planet earth um pattern you know according to kingdoms and um fiefs you know they refer to these leaders as dukes uh, you know duke leto um yeah harkonnen isn't uh harkonnen also referred to as a king in some context but he's also known as the the, the harkonnen people used to have control of dune 
And then, I mean, it was like you said, it was like an early spoiler alert, but Leto, the Trades people get Arcus to take over it. And, yeah. but it was really like all a trap and like, it, mm-hmm. you know, it, they were never really meant to go to Dune and succeed at harvesting the spice. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some unknown reason, the emperor just wanted like the whole family killed, which yeah. didn't work because the, the doctor gave him that little tooth. You remember that? Yeah, <laughs> the little yeah. tooth bomb? Yeah, the, there's uh, layers of duplicity involved. Yes. <laughs> Har- uh, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, right? He, the character played by Stellan Skarsgård. Brilliant portrayal, by the way, too. I, he totally sells the one line, you know, my Arrakis, uh, or my, my planet, my Arrakis, my doom. You know, <laughs> describing how the the lives of the Atreides will be claimed by the the sand, if not by his forces. Yeah, it's uh, it's very brutal, very like Game of Thrones. Um, does, does the Emperor have a name? What what's his name? Do you know? I just call him the Emperor. Yeah. Um, I wish they could name some of these people and stick with the tune of Jessica and Paul, because I can remember those types of names later, mm. but I don't know if the Emperor has it. And what a nasty looking guy. Like, yeah, har- harkening, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that nasty temperament, everything about him. You know, he's like a space job of the hut, you know, kind of creep. <laughs> I'm curious how they go about in this universe um, deciding who the emperor is. I'm not sure if that's something that guy was born into because it definitely wasn't someone people voted for, I would assume. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, democracy is fairly scarce, it seems. Um, but yeah, you're dealing with planets and these vast riches beyond, you know, beyond our ability to, uh, to, uh, to reconcile rationally, I feel, especially when you're dealing with substances that are like these psychoactive drugs responsible for navigating um, spaceships yeah interstellar yeah (laughs) travel Um, i am not someone who typically like like you are such a star wars fan but i loved watching these spaceships like land and take mm -hmm. off with the music hans zimmer did the music which i'm sure most listeners might have known um he's super famous like he is a huge Mm -hmm. what what do you call it the soundtrack he's the soundtrack guy uh, the king yeah, he's one of the more prolific composers of the Composer, current art era. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, film composers who uh, you know done scores for a lot of Christopher Nolan films, Pirates of the Caribbean. He was supposed to do the movie Tenant, but he turned it down to work on Dune because apparently he was a fan of the book. And when he was approached with this project, he it was explained to him that the music would kind of be like the voiceover, the music would speak for the characters because we don't really have a lot of voiceover narrating characters' thoughts or feelings. I don't think we actually have any of that Mm -hmm. um, in the movie. So he really got to make the music a character and that really comes through the whole time. I was lucky enough to see the movie in one of those Dolby Plex cinema, really great sound, really great sound. And it, it was amazing what he did. Whenever rockets were going by or landing or anyone was going through anything, the music was just mm-hmm. awesome. I, I, you watched it through HBO, right? Did you still yep. get that that sense of yeah. massive was, sound? 
Yeah, the sound was, you know, considerable. I uh, was not disappointed. We got some good surround sound here. Um, so I felt fully immersed. Um, and, and the music and soundtrack did provide really the, the unifying texture of this entire experience, uh, sort of like a narrator would, for sure. Um, there, there is some narration. Was there? Um, I think there's yeah. pieces of it. Like at the beginning, they're like dreams are a sign from the deep. You know, yeah. there's a little bit of that, but it's not like you get to hear Paul every second of the day. You know, in the way the book yeah. is, you can read his thoughts, you can read his narration throughout the book, but yeah, not so much mind. in a movie like this. You know. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. I um, I preferred that with this. I liked the serious tone and like less script the better i feel like sometimes with action movies if, this probably wouldn't be considered quite an action movie but you know actiony movies there's sort of dialogue that is just sort of stock dialogue to push the story along mm -hmm. and i get tired of that really easily i'm i'm always a fan of less words than more words if possible mm -hmm. yeah yeah very poetic in nature painterly um the and hans zimmer also scored the lion king uh fair to mention um so oh, yeah Brian's you're right and here. i was just comparing it to the lion king mm -hmm. and he did hans zimmer did like corpse bride right he's done some animated mm -hmm. ones he's yeah he kind of has his own little cottage industry and he hires a lot of people to help him out on on a lot of score i i feel like um he does so many scores that he just is sort of a brand like a producer at this point and he's got a bunch of people working for a month it's you know it's not everything he does bears his unique you know imprint and signature but um in this case it was for sure him pouring a lot of love into the project um yeah denis Villeneuve, the director, has done things like Blade Runner 2049. Um, let's see, the movie Prisoners, which I really like. Did he do Sicario as well? Um, but uh, a recently very prolific director, um, very well. Uh, let's see, he did Arrival. Um, so an uh, uh, impressive resume. Uh, lately for Denis Villeneuve, um, uh, apart from perhaps some minor disappointment at the box office, in, in some cases, uh, Blade Runner 2049 didn't do terrifically well at the box office. But even now, Dune, you know, isn't you know, necessarily doing gangbusters. It's doing enough to warrant a sequel. But uh, I think it's such a tough time for movies like not trying to say, oh, it would have done so much better if like COVID never happened. But I do think, well, he had said, I watched some of the interviews leading up to the debut here in the US and um, the director was saying he was really worried that by not only having it viewed in theaters, it would like hurt the overall like appreciation of the movie and could affect the chance of getting that green light for the sequel. He was kind of worried how people would fare on the small screen, like if their concentration would be as strong compared to in the theater. You know, in the theater, you're in a dark room, everyone around you is experiencing it the mm. same. You don't have your cell phone out. Hopefully you don't have your cell phone out. Mm. Um, and he was worried about that. So we looked it up right before we hopped on today. And I think in the US opening weekend, it was 41 million. 
but mm -hmm. to date it's closer worldwide to 300 million um, yeah so pretty good That's i don't a... know what that is compared to other giant projects but yeah sounds good to me um do we have an estimate to the let's see the budget i'm i wonder it was 165 okay. for this one I pulled yeah. it up ahead of time, which is, that's a healthy budget. And they went all around the world filming this. It looks like they were like in Abu Dhabi, um, Jordan, Belgium, you know, they really filmed in um, accurate looking locations. You yeah. know what I mean? Like they didn't, but they also had big sets. So mm -hmm. they yeah, there's kind of ways. really went all out. Yeah. Uh, we've seen now with the technology used to make, modern Star Wars with the Mandalorian where it's rear projection in big virtual panoramic uh, sound stages. Um, you know, you can really sell an alien environment without um, having to go out to a live location. Uh, but something like, you know, these immense sand dunes and these aerial shots that they get of the, the desert, you know, are, are not things that you can really replicate um very easily and not that you have to because there's plenty of desert in the world that you can go and film um so wise to uh to take advantage of the the locations that closely match this sort of alien environment as has been done for a lot of sci-fi films where having a desert planet you know not, not only is it fairly um realistic for <laughs> deserts to um you know occupy sort of a, a terrestrial body because water is fairly scarce in the universe but also there are plenty of places to um to achieve that look on our planet itself it really does look otherworldly when they're scanning the you know the horizon of these deserts it doesn't look like a place i've ever been on the planet mm. i've never visited an area like that we're both from minnesota so we're used mm. to some trees and some lakes i don't know if you've spent much time out in the desert but i thought that was awesome um, yeah and i thought it was awesome that they didn't make the sandworm cheesy because i was like how are they gonna do this so that it's not like cringy because out in dune out in Ar arrakis uh they have these sand dunes uh, not sand dunes they have these sandworms um, and if you've seen the movie, mm. you know that they're sort of attracted to their prey by the pattern of the walking, like the boom, 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 boom. So the freemen have created a way of walking around to sort of like avoid being eaten by them. Mm. But I was like waiting and waiting and waiting for one to show up on screen because I was really curious if they were going to do a good job. Do you feel like they felt like high quality monsters or did they still kind of come off silly to you? I, it's hard to make a worm uh, like scary to me. No, I, I don't think there was any part of the portrayal of the worms that seemed um, fakey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they were, I mean, they were kind of the more compelling slash terrifying aspect of the film overall. Uh, you really felt, I mean, there just were several moments where when they got close, you think, oh, these characters are just totally screwed. But, uh, you know, miraculously, they're able to, to pull out of a couple of different situations uh, in, in the nick of time. Uh, but yeah, like once the sand starts to buckle and it becomes uh, like the quicksand, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's just that's like when, you know, you're you're done. But yeah, that's that's how sand 
acts when it's being um, disturbed by some kind of, um, you know, current underneath that, um, you know, is able to prevent it from being, you know, compacted uh, like a hard surface. And, and yeah, it's just the physics of sand are, are terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. It takes me back to Philip and I grew up in like a small town where we had to take farm safety. And something you learn during farm safety is like not to climb into like the grain bins because oh, it will yeah. sort of like suck you in like the corn or the wheat, whatever's in the grain bin. And so they start, yeah. That, so as a fourth grader, fifth grader, whenever we did farm safety as kids, I would always sort of think about what would I do if I was in a situation where I'm like in a grain bin, you know, as a kid, mm -hmm. you sort of imagine these terrifying moments happening. Um, and, and they do happen to people. So I'm not trying to say it doesn't, but, but yeah, I guess watching this movie could kind of tap into that whole fear of being sucked in by, yeah. by a quicksand, you know, even though the worm is probably supposed to be scarier than the sand. <laughs> One thing I will say that scared me more than the worms is in the book and also in the movie, the thought of like, dying of thirst like quite literally like being so thirsty and so hot and so warm and in the movie and in the book they have these still suits that save like every last drop of water um but what really annoyed me was and i know they did this for the the look of it in the movie the suits are black but like if you're in the middle of a desert you're not going to be wearing a black suit like that's going to pull in the heat in the book they're wearing like a nude sand okay. colored uh outfit but I, i'm sure they just did that for the aesthetic huh yeah the uh i guess paul's suit is one of the purely black ones but there are ones that are are more of a, a earth tone color um like the one that jessica wears um towards the end i suppose just the the straight black suit would be maybe um reserved for distinguished people like mm -hmm. the, the royalty you know um yeah it's, it's uh i suppose the technology though is uh, sound enough to still prevent you know the the mere thimble full of water lost per day on average regardless of the the color <laughs> but yeah for camouflage too it would be helpful to keep the sand color there's that that one action sequence which is sort of a flash forward vision um and it had a very sort of lord of the rings flavor to it i know but yeah the the fremen and the still suits emerging from the sand taking on the emperor's forces um yeah i mean i, I would look forward to seeing more of that kind of thing but i could also see that type of vision as being sort of crippling for for Paul being like, oh, well, what <laughs> series of actions will I need to take to get me to this point? And uh -huh. uh, how do I not just totally screw myself over uh, along the way, you know, and put, put a foot wrong? It's like, you know, to how many sliding doors need to uh, <laughs> align in order for, for these perfect. And, and of course, that's not how you approach that kind of thing in life you just take oh that's how i would at a time <laughs> no i mean yeah. if anyone has seen the show that's so raven from disney yeah. channel yeah. you know that you try to avoid some of these predictions coming true for your own <laughs> for your own well-being uh yeah. which which makes it interesting i love that i like don't 
think he's too much because I was worried that they were going to try to make Paul too perfect. I mean, he's supposed to be really good at battling and he, mm -hmm. he's really smart and he's intelligent and he's well-liked and he's loved. Mm -hmm. all, you know, I mean, there's not a bad thing to be said. And sometimes mm -hmm. that's annoying in a character. You're like, okay, like, stop. Uh, so I think they, <laughs> they did a good job keeping him feeling humble and feeling mm -hmm. approachable and like, yes, he's the son of a Duke and the daughter, not the daughter, the son mm -hmm. of Lord Jessica but um, yeah he, he was good to me like I can't get over it I saw him only once in Little Women and now I feel like mm -hmm. I'm on this like fan train of Timothy which maybe like millions of people are but I, for me I never really knew oh he's, <laughs> he's like a fan girl but like I'm just saying like wow like so good he's sort of this uh wafer thin framed character you know actor uh you know this, this sort of little uh mopey uh I think he looks dream, like Dawson. dreamboat doesn't he yeah. kind of look like Dawson yeah. if Dawson was not tan and had like yeah. lighter hair? Dawson's a little bit put on a fair amount of muscle lately too, though. So he's uh, high school yeah. Dawson. Yeah, for sure, high school. I, me, I'm skin and bones right now. So I mean, I uh, <laughs> I'm less uh, Current physically. Current day Philip. There we go. It's <laughs> Philip now. Dawson ten years uh, ago. No, you, you wouldn't want me to. <laughs> I, I'd be uh frightening to put on camera in the state i'm in but um yeah with with it's Timothy all about Chalamet. the confidence i think because i mean this guy yeah. i mean he's he's pale as a bone they'll put he... him into you know marvel workout mode and he'll you know shape up in no time i'm sure but um i was wondering that if that is like the natural body type of sometimes i wonder like you see an actor when they have to do like a shirtless scene and you know that the character is supposed to be slender Mm -hmm. did did he like say okay you have to lose 20 pounds for this role i know they do stuff like that right yeah i mean they'll they'll do whatever they whatever it takes you know for the mm -hmm. role um and then yeah he, he is a naturally thin actor timothy so um you know they don't need to make him too bulky for the more heroic character down the line he, he's supposed to become and i think i feel like something was done maybe they did a body replacement in that one action scene um because it's okay. he seemed to be a, you know bit just bigger in that right. in that scene um, and i guess in the year oh go ahead Sorry. well because at the start of this film you don't want him to look like totally you know <laughs> geeked out adult yet um you want him mm -hmm. to, to still have some of his boyish features and um, so I, I thought it was effective uh, just the way he was now, but still demonstrating aptitude with combat and some of the training sequences and stuff. And in this world, I mean, not that it doesn't help to be athletic, but they do have a lot of fighting styles that are more about, you know, the speed and agility. Mm -hmm. uh, I liked watching the scenes. And again, I'm not somebody who likes the violent type stuff, but they have these sort of barriers or this armor that kind of flashes blue and red i don't even really remember what that's called oh, yeah. but as they're fighting they're able to physically take hits mm -hmm. um without actually getting i don't mm -hmm. i don't know did, did you remember when you were listening to the audio about them talking about these suits yeah I'm what are they there's um certain terms that they use but they're they're, they're force field uh force field there we armor go. yeah that that has a yeah a shield technology that stops i uh, objects that are capable of inflicting damage um to an extent you know you can still and the slower objects will penetrate the 
the field because they're perceived as non-threatening. But if you just continue to press a slow-moving object through the uh, the force field, you could penetrate, you know, the wearer. Um, so that's what um, Josh Brolin's character says. You know, the slow blade. Um, <laughs> something about the slow blade punctures the skin or something like that. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. I need to watch it a second time. I've been telling myself that. The slow blade wins the day. <laughs> yeah. Is that what it is? I, I don't know. It's oh. something to do with the slow blade uh, because, yeah, swinging fast will deflect, you know, unless like you're just being overwhelmed by the enemy, like you see later in some scenes, and, you know, the, they are right. able to eventually just um, overwhelm Penetrate. the. Yeah. The technology i thought the costume including those but like those suits the costume design overall was really good i feel like sometimes with sci-fi it gets a little bit like nonsensical because mm -hmm. it's like a sci-fi so they have these really unique helmets or suits or whatever but i liked that everything felt really realistic and i liked mm -hmm. that their um their royal garb i guess like lady jessica's costuming in particular um it was really really great and i liked that none of it felt distracting you know, like the, the whole tone, I guess that it, well, there's a whole tone over the whole entire movie with these muted colors. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like sometimes I guess I'm comparing it to Star Trek. Like I'm not someone who even knows, but like the bright reds, bright greens. Bright yeah, blues. Like, I'm sure. kind of happy they stayed away from that. Um, I don't know who mm -hmm. does costume design, but I, I thought it was really great. Yeah. Yeah. I was glad the cinematography and coloring, you know, it's muted, but appropriately so, because that's the aesthetic of the planet. It's, it's very hazy, very dusty. Uh, there's scenes on um, the, the Kara Fuji's, what's the planet they, they originally are from, the Atreides. Coronia? Caradon. Caladon. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that, you know, is much more lush and vibrant um still sort of muted i think because you know they they just don't portray it on any real bright days i guess <laughs> but um the I, I it just didn't seem like this movie had you know an arbitrary filter over everything it was more just that was capturing the environment in which it was shot um and, and some some sci-fi movies in this type of environment seem to have a bit more of uh, artistic sort of haze thrown over everything like a gel or a, a tint um, a movie like like the mm -hmm. like the Riddick movies with Vin Diesel have kind of a stylistic hue um, added to everything and and they're good looking films but you know they've got their own distinctive style that's a lot different than this you know this is trying to be a lot more realistic right which is exactly what I feel like the consumers sort of wanted they wanted to believe in this and mm. I mean I thought I mean I guess it's sort of a tale as old as time with the political plot lines and like the distribution of resources issues if you've mm. seen um Avatar or Pocahontas or you've like read U.S. history like that whole like the the wealthy or the empower coming in and taking away from poor you know the oil or whatever they need yeah. whatever it is at the time um in this case the spice like mm -hmm. i really liked that i saw a couple of people online kind of commenting being like oh like that's the problem with capitalism and it's like mm 
I don't think like this movie is trying to be like capitalism gone wrong. I think you said it earlier. It's it's imperial like feudalism, kind of like the whole interstellar community is being run by yeah. this emperor, and it's sort of like the but what what comes before capitalism, like what the world was before that, in my opinion. Um, yeah. And I I like plot lines like that. I think sometimes some people think they're like a little tired because so it's, many stories uh, have it, but yeah. but I like it, and I feel like it, for me, it's always just like a reminder of like taking a look at who's making the rules and why you know you see this emperor kind of giving big parts of the universe to these Mm -hmm. dukes that just use threat and violence to keep Mm -hmm. things in line and the religion aspect coming into it Mm -hmm. um and and i like when it's put into a movie where you can be a little more like reflective on it without like hating on your own i don't know country or or whatever Mm -hmm. you know um yeah I, i liked that they they kept that in, even though some people complain that it's like done too often. Did did it? Do you feel like that storyline is like done to death? <laughs> no, I I'm glad we're getting an anthropological perspective of this universe and able to see things from all different perspectives. You know, from the you know, I I guess the omniscient perspective of the uh, antagonists all the way to the you know the lowliest of fremen you know scrounging on the planet for survival uh you know even close-up shots of these little rodents that are running around on the dunes (laughs) oh the little mouse with the big ears yeah Yeah, i forgot about that all aspects of this world are open for exploration I love when they show that that because it like it gives you a kind of a like another sense of perspective when you see the Mm -hmm. the fauna or the flora you know coming Mm -hmm. into it um and I really liked in the book um Jessica when she is on Arrakis she comes across a big garden but in this they did those palm trees where it's like even on this desolate desert area they they pour like so much love and like Mm -hmm. water which is this in incredibly like valuable yeah. resource to like grow these palms mm-hmm. which end up being burnt and, and that's yeah. annoying but I just all those little moments coming in to make for great storytelling um, just little pieces that you can try to hold on to and overthink on your own <laughs> yeah the sequence of the uh, planet Arrakis being invaded um, was definitely s- just so strikingly similar to a, a scene i saw recently which was the film the chronicles of riddick um and it's just clear to see the inspiration uh, drawn for the creation of that film which obviously is a much more uh recent invention uh but drawing from the, the same well of ideas that is you know is what things like uh dune helped generate um, and yeah, Tatooine and Star Wars and just so many s- scenes of desert planets throughout the history of Star Trek and other franchises. Um, but yeah, the, the destruction Did, and yeah. Do you know if the if Dune, the book, at least 1965, if this came mm-hmm. out before all of was this sort of like the inspiration for a lot of those things? I know sci fi mm-hmm. all sort of runs together and probably builds off each other. But hmm. Star Trek w- wouldn't have all these things come out after Dune. Well, um, I, let's see, 2001: A Space Odyssey was even before that. Uh, that was two, that was 1960. 
wait no 69 was was the film but i guess the um oh, what's his name i'll just arthur c clark wrote 2001 a space odyssey that's another famous um sci-fi robert highland he was writing some sort of planet hopping sci-fi back in the 50s ray bradbury was was oh, okay. 50s if not earlier um so so um herbert so wasn't really. wasn't the earliest uh, but okay. highly influential philip k dick was also a big contributor around this time um yeah it's it's hard to say um I think a lot of these sort of humans expanding to other worlds concepts had been percolate, percolating for some time, um, but they really um, solidified in something really operatic um, with, with something like Dune, which wasn't strictly trying to like convey um a series of like philosophical or conceptual ideas but rather more of like a, a mythological almost Epic. yeah yeah exactly and for those who don't know like we said the, the, um, the movie came out in 84 for dune but we just like looked up that there was a series that came out in 2001 as well a mini series so yeah. if there are people who watched it and are like eager to like see more of the storyline but don't like want to read the book there is that out there too. I want to watch it now after we sort of took some time to look into it and dig into it more. Yeah. Apparently it's very good. Uh, it won some primetime Emmys. Uh, it debuted on the Sci-Fi Network, Sci-Fi Channel, I believe. Uh, but it's like a three-part, uh, fairly high, highly produced. You know, I, I mean, it's it's probably got a lot of cheesy visual effects for being you know a, a television drama ultimately, but um, I'm sure there's a lot of love and care put into this four hour and 25 minute, you know, Dune adaptation. Did this one seem the right length to you? Some people said that they got bored. This was a two and a half hour movie. Did you feel like the pace was right? I don't know. It, there were times I felt I would have appreciated a bit more of a Star Warsian cadence because uh, yeah it did you know it, it does have um more you know how lord of the Rings, and it's especially apparent in the music i feel and in lord of the rings um is david arnold no who, who did the music anyways um the it's not as militaristic or punctuated you know by by all these um frequent moments of action as um, as something like Star Wars, where it, you know that's very much set to a, a very fast tempo for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. this, this movie, yeah, has has a lot of sort of lingering moments, and um, I, I, you know, thought that maybe um, hurt it for me a little bit, um, especially when I I appreciate how sometimes these grand tales like they don't need any additional window dressing I, I just prefer them to be told as um as utilitarian and plainly as possible um and, and just let the world kind of speak for itself maybe have some you know fun epic music like the john williams scores star wars um but 
you know, this, yeah, it, I, I feel like there was a lot of stylistic injection from Denis Villeneuve and, and Hans Zimmer that maybe distracted a little bit from the grandiose nature of the story as a whole. I mean, ultimately it complements it. I get what they're going for. They, it's, it's trying to be very epic, but, mm -hmm. but that's the key. Like it's, it's maybe trying a little too hard. And I, I just, I feel like, you know, it could drag sometimes yeah. or bog, bog it down a <laughs> tiny bit. Yeah. So faster, more intense could have been applied in a few situations. Uh, but there were some good action beats and, and like the moment with the sand worm, you know, <laughs> and, and the refinery, like that, that was like straight out of Avatar for me. I feel, you know, it was, it was exciting kind of uh, set dressing. What did you think about Jason Momoa? He was like the big, like comedic relief for a second before he oh, got yeah. killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was great. Um, provided some great action as well. He brought a little energy into it. I feel like most of the characters are so solemn. Mm -hmm. And I, I would have liked a few more moments of like up, up, like yeah. up energy, which, but I get it. Like they're like all fighting for their life and dying. So like we don't yeah. need a bunch of like slapstick or anything, but I do mm -hmm. feel like they could have put a little, not even comedy into it, but just a little more. Yeah, the, you did have an, enough of that sort of um, upbeat, almost snark. Uh, <laughs> that, he's like putting so, on muscle and he's like, you think so? He's like, no. <laughs> or something uh, like that. He says, devil may care. It was okay. the only like time I sort of laughed, I guess. Because yeah, you need a Han Solo in these kinds of stories. Otherwise they just get It just too keeps serious. it going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and thankfully, uh, yeah, there was some of that here. I mean, it's not trying to just, yeah, be so up its own uh, butt on everything. Um, but uh, yeah, who is going to provide that now? I suppose some of the Fremen characters um, hopefully provide a little bit of um, relief from, from some of the tension. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Zendaya, excited to see yeah. Oh yeah, she'll she'll bring in a little bit of that like love element. I mean, it's not a love story, but there's like like passion brewing, I guess, between those two characters. Um, and in and some she's sense. like she's kind of spunky, you know. She's yeah, she's great. Yeah, and from what I hear, she's like a great human being, which makes okay. you love her as a character so much more. She's dating like that Tom Holland guy oh, who sure. played okay. Spider Man. And if he likes her, I feel like I like her. I wish she would have had a little bit more in this because she was so much in the trailers. Mm -hmm. um, but then I realized like what you saw in the trailers is what you're going to see in part one. Yeah. Um, but still, she's she's the face of this movie. I also wish they would have kept, and I know it's impossible to just keep characters in because mm -hmm. you like them, but his father, Leto, like I feel like you didn't really get to see the love between him and Jessica and Paul and just kind of that family unit that they did mm. create and they really like wanted to preserve. I wish you could have gotten a little bit more of that so that you felt more as it kind of fell apart so they could rebuild, you know? Yeah, he, you know, his uh, character was uh, given a lot of good servicing in the moment when, you know, he just really reinforced his unconditional love for Paul saying that, you know, no matter what Paul's ultimate destiny were to be, like the fact that he is uh, Leto's son is is all that Leto needs to to have 
just the, the fullest extent of love and compassion for his son. And that was very yeah. moving, I thought. But yeah, yeah we, uh, tragically, you know, short-lived. And he's such a great, like, strong face to have on screen. Like, bring mm -hmm. him back. Bring him back for part two. Yeah, flashbacks or visions. Who knows? Oh, actually, yeah. Maybe they will do that. Maybe they will utilize him in visions. I have no idea. I, sh yeah. I, I read the book for, like five years ago. So yeah. I, I can't was, say I remember absolutely everything. Yeah, I was such a simp for the moment. And not, not a bad thing. Like in Star Wars Episode Nine, though, when Harrison Ford comes back and it's not even like he's a force ghost or anything. He's just appearing in sort of this hallucination that his son is having. But even that moment by itself which is so resonant for me and i just i loved every moment of it just you know ate it up um you know no matter what you know weird implications there might have been to some people who, who are confused by it i i just took it as you know this this character is having an internal reckoning and he's he's go sorting a lot of things out psychologically and and this is just his uh his method of coping yeah so very effective hope, hope to see similar things with oscar isaac uh, in future dune movies absolutely i'm trying to check through my notes to be sure that i went through everything i wanted to with this because you do kind of have to not go so so deep with it mm -hmm. because otherwise it becomes like a four-hour conversation yeah no we, we if anyone hasn't seen it like if anyone hasn't seen it like please please like go out and support it so they have more money to make the sequel for me <laughs> yeah um i mean i hopefully they're happy with the streaming numbers too i you know i probably won't go out to the theater at this point because i've seen it twice seen it. <laughs> but um i uh uh you know really enjoy it so it's a fantastic film and what anything else that we need to cover from your end jody uh, no i feel like i kind of tiptoed into what i wanted to um i guess the only thing that i I hope to see more of is um, the Benta, the women, that yeah. women, the, because I really feel like this like women group is running the show politically and with their religion mm -hmm. kind of as their shield. Um, yeah, and I guess... so I, I hope that they bring out a little bit more of like juice from that because I feel like people would eat that up right now, you know, it's right. feminism. And I mean, not that they're doing it for good. It's actually probably like, women for the worse actually in this time but but they think they're doing it for the good a, a metaphor know? for the fact that behind every great man there's a great one uh like yeah, the, the there whole, they are the patriarchal um you know consequences of uh of rule and politics um you know and and but thankfully there are powerful women who are involved in things as well but yeah in, in this case they are given a fair amount of spotlight um but it's hard to determine what their true motives are because they do operate so secretly it's very fascinating like they're like the jedi in some ways but also um well the, i mean i can't i don't see them as all that um malevolent because I, I see the empire as also sort of inherently malevolent. But like so. in the book they're they're like they manipulate people's thoughts like they okay. manipulate people like you know how she has Jessica has that second voice and she can control what people yeah. are like doing to her like the higher-ups have the ability to like talk to the emperor and like 
plant seeds it, yeah. like inception where you like go into their dreams mm -hmm. and you mess up like the plants but but yeah i'm sure we'll see more of them as we we get hopefully the sequel in the next i don't know probably like four years honestly <laughs> yeah <laughs> who knows see. these days with with the timeline of things very cool well yeah, hopefully it's, it's sooner rather than later um i i think on um denny villeneuve's imdb page he already has uh, listing for ooh, Dune Part Two uh, in pre-production for 2023. Oh. So really, yeah, something to live for through these cold, cold Georgia winters. Yeah, well, I'll reconnect in 2023 to talk about <laughs> Dune Part Two. Um, and yeah, this has been fun. Uh, sorry for the lack of entries from us on the podcast, but. I don't we're, know, been, we're transitioning yeah. into this fall like winter mm -hmm. season and we're just we're getting our heads on straight dealing with some stuff in life so uh hopefully we'll stick to it uh trying to stay inspired and interested in all the stuff that's going on which there's obviously tons but um hard to sort of well we do have the the disney animation uh and Encanto. Encanto. yeah yeah and that's that. music yeah that's going to be energetic some mm -hmm. of these i mean the Shining, Dune, maybe they're not the most fun. So, but in Contour, oh, I, I love, yeah, these conversations are great. I mean, it's just what other stuff, you know, is worth discussing. I don't know. There's, there was that like Mayan uh, Netflix movie that, that looked kind of interesting. Maybe oh, I, yeah. Star Wars Visions would be kind of fun to talk about um, as far as animation goes. Um, it's like the anime Star Wars series of short films, um, sort of disconnected short films so we'll see um but yeah jody any other uh things you want to say to sign off um you know the social media and so forth i mean i don't have time for social media right now but if you guys are on there come find me right now i'm on instagram jody j-o-d-i pulaski p-o-l-a-s-k-y uh and i'm traveling and i'm working and i would love your likes to like support me <laughs> just kidding but yeah that's where i'm at or you can find me here every couple of weeks uh or more with philip and the gang very fun um you can find me philip elke at philip elke on twitter and instagram and thoughtcast at uh, thoughtcast.com and at thoughtcast on twitter and instagram soundcloud spotify stitcher apple podcasts and the like um yeah uh gives the follow a positive review if you're inclined um yeah um dune dune hesitate to track <laughs> down this film uh it's i guess only on hbo max for a limited amount of time um otherwise um we'll be getting part two in 2023 hooray for that um well it will be an action-packed uh season at the movies i imagine now coming out of covid at the end of 2021 so i'm sure we'll just be overwhelmed by kind of a glut of offerings um, both large and small so we'll see what piques our fancy um but uh, in the meantime thank you so much jody for joining me on this little uh trip into the duniverse um and yeah, I, I love this kind of thing. Sci-fi, epic um, world building, space opera. So uh, until next time, uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, for Jody Pulaski, um, have a 
Magical day. Have a wonderful week. Warm hugs.